We'll be studying this morning, Romans 11, from verse 25 to 32. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in, and so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at once, one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. Over a hundred years ago, uh, the king uh, of Prussia, Frederick the Great, was having a conversation with his chaplain. Uh, Frederick had become influenced by some of the sceptical thoughts of his day. He'd been reading Voltaire, and uh, he was wanting uh, the chaplain to give him an opportunity to to prove uh, the truthfulness of the Bible. And he said to the chaplain, if the Bible is true, it ought to be very straightforward for someone like you uh, to prove that it's true. But every time I ask someone for proof of the Bible, they hand me this great tome that uh, I have neither the inclination or the time to read. Give me proof of the truth of the Bible in a word. To his surprise, the chaplain replied, "Uh, Your Majesty, uh, I can do exactly as you ask. I can, with one word, give you proof of the Bible's trustworthiness. King was rather taken aback. He said, what is this magic word that you have which will prove for me the truthfulness of the Bible? And Sire, the chaplain replied, Israel. Israel, uh, the continuing existence of the people of God, is one of the outstanding illustrations of the truthfulness of the Bible. Think about it. Israel has uh, existed as a people group for 4,000 years. Most of the other groups that were around when the Old Testament was written are long forgotten. Uh, There's no place at the table of the United Nations for the Philistines or the Hittites. You won't see their name badge uh, in front of a delegate there. The Babylonians, uh, the Assyrians, all the great emperors of the day, they have collapsed and have faded away, and most people have forgotten all about them. But Israel is there. And not only so, but the prophecies in the Bible concerning the continuing uh, purposes that God has for the Jewish people spiritually are strong evidence for the Bible being inspired of God. Now we're in the the last straight, as it were, of this section that's run from chapter 9 to chapter 11, where Paul is 
are countering the accusation that because the majority of the Jewish people haven't believed in Jesus uh, as their saviour, that God's promises to Israel have failed. And in chapter 9 up to verse 30, he focuses on the sovereignty of God. And the point that he makes there is that it was never the case that every individual in ethnic Israel would be saved, but God has a remnant. He elects a people from within Israel. And then from verse 30 of chapter 9 through to the end of chapter 10, uh, the focus changes from God's sovereignty to human responsibility, which is always the other side of the equation. And Paul is saying the people of Israel have actually had plenty of opportunity to respond. God sent preachers, which is the way uh, by which people hear and believe. God sent preachers. And yet they have not responded with faith. They bear the responsibility on themselves. But then in chapter 11, uh, there is a a development again of the argument. And it's in two parts. To begin with, Paul saying that God's... uh, Sorry, the rejection of Israel is not a complete rejection. Not every Jew has rejected Jesus. He says, I, for example, am a Jew. And yet I am a Christian. And there are many others. It's not complete. And then secondly, and this is the section that we're in, it's not final. The rejection of Israel, of their Messiah, is not final. There is a time of future blessing when they will turn and acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. So it's the prospect, the future prospects for Israel, which are in view in this section running from... uh, Verse 25 to 32. And Paul speaks about a mystery. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers. What's he meaning? It doesn't mean mystery in the Agatha Christie sense of mystery. You know, something that is to keep you guessing. Something uh, that is there designed to be veiled, kept hidden. A mystery in the Bible sense is a secret that has been revealed. Charles Hodge, theologian, defines mystery in the Bible as any future event which could be known only by divine revelation. That's a mystery. So what Paul's saying about the Jews, they're hardening their future faith and the impact that will have on the Gentiles. That is something that could only be known by God making it known. In fact, if you look today at the extreme scepticism of many Jews, despite, as we said, them having their own uh, Old Testament, uh, it's a wonder to many that there would be a turning of these people to Jesus. But here we have a special insight. There's a mystery that has been given to us. Something we would not otherwise have known that God has chosen to reveal to us. So we're in the realm of prophecy. And people get very excited about prophecy, and especially get excited about prophecy when it has uh, relation to Israel. People are all ears when uh, there's a message about the future of Israel. They want to know if Israel's uh, political neighbours who are so antagonistic, you know what, Iran and and Jordan and, and so on, if they're going to be zapped, 
They want to know if the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim shrine uh, where the temple was, is going to be removed and the temple is going to be rebuilt. They want to know if worship is going to be reinstated in the old temple and all of these things. And a great deal of interest in Israel is fueled by some unreliable methods of Bible handling. And in case you're thinking that we're going to go in that kind of uh, quasi-political direction, let me disappoint you here now. We're not going there. I'm quite persuaded that there is no going back to the centrality of Israel as a nation, in God's scheme, or to her former ways of worship. These things belong to the infancy of the church. When Israel was center stage in God's dealing, she was there to instruct the world about the coming of the Messiah. Her worship was a shadow of the reality that was to come. And when the reality comes in Jesus, there is no way that we're going back again to the shadows. With the coming of Jesus, the purposes of God are to all nations. That's the whole point of Pentecost. And so... As we go through these verses, we avoid some of the excesses of dispensationalist teaching, which essentially says that uh, God is a twin-track approach uh, to Israel and the church, that the promises continue to be fulfilled in a very literal way to Israel as nation, and the church goes on a separate track. However, although that is the case, and although that, that would be the reformed position, we are not thereby going to uh, ignore, uh, you know, rub out what is very clear teaching on definite future blessing for Israel. We want to take seriously this passage which says, and so all Israel shall be saved, and consider what it means. Paul's purpose is not speculative, but it's practical, it's pastoral. Notice that he says, I don't want you to be conceited, brothers. There's a danger of conceit. And we kind of scratch our heads and we think, well, why? (laughs) Why is there a danger of conceit? Well, remember that the the readers of the letter in Rome are largely Gentile people. They're non-Jews. And so there's the danger that they might become triumphalistic. You know, the Jews were the top dog. Now they've been knocked off their perch. And now we have taken over. And Paul does not want the Gentile, the Gentile Christians to be singing, we are the people. That's not what he's looking for. He wants a proper humility and gratitude towards Israel as the root from which they have sprung. Now, we read right to the end of the chapter, and we have at the end of the chapter uh, what's called a doxology, which literally means a, a word of praise, word of praise to God. So everything is flowing through to this doxology. God is being exalted. And, and that goes for the verses that we're looking at this morning. And so I want to make the focus of our our sermon this morning not so much Israel, but the God of Israel. This God who will lead Paul into this outpouring of praise in the doxology. And I want us to consider three things. First of all, God is sovereign. Second, God is faithful. And third, God is merciful. And all, of course, in relation to 
uh, the Jewish people. God is sovereign. These verses give us uh, a real indication of God's sovereign control over the sweep of history. His purposes for nations as well as individuals. We are today living in the time of the Gentiles, as Paul was, in which the bulk of God's people are non-Jews. And God has ordained this. And the Jews have experienced a hardening in part in order that this might take place. Notice Paul says a hardening in part. You know, it's a gentle reminder. Not all the Jews have rejected Jesus. That's what he said already. It's a hardening in part. He speaks of this hardening again in 2 Corinthians 3.14. But their minds, that's the minds of the Jewish people, were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Now, God has ordained this hardening, but it's also a judgment on their unbelief. You know, there's always the two. You know, God sovereignly does something, but there's a responsibility on the human side for their rejection of God or their unbelief or their wickedness. And there is a judgment on Israel. Verse 23 makes this clear. It's a judicial hardening. And there's a solemn thought that Israel are experiencing the consequences of that dreadful cry that went up in Pilate's judgment hall when the people who called for crucifixion said, let his blood be on us and on our children. And that is what essentially has happened. Generation after generation have remained in unbelief. And this will continue, says Paul, until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, again, what is this? The full number of the Gentiles has come in. So God is sovereignly overruling the movements of history and will wait until the full number, the full flowering of Gentile conversions has taken place before there will be that turning of Israel. Now you see the same kind of thing happening in earlier periods of the Bible. For example, back in Genesis uh, Genesis 15, 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. 400 years Israel will be in Egypt. Why 400 years? Why this length of time? God explains in verse 16. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. It's amazing. Israel is going to spend this long period in Egypt because God is patiently waiting until the Amorites have reached that point in their wickedness when judgment will fall. There's a precise period in history, a time that has to elapse Allowing the, 
the, the, the cup of wickedness of the Amorites to be filled up. And then God will say, enough is enough. And he will use the Israelites as his instrument of judgment. They will come in in the conquest. All of history is moving to God's drumbeat. Regardless of what we, we see about the, the influence of political parties and world trade agreements and all of these other forces, they are subordinate to the mighty hand of God. And yet at the same time, it moves by the obedience or the willful disobedience of people who are free and responsible. And so there's the time, first, of the disobedience of the Gentiles when God permitted them to go their own way and God focuses purposes on Israel. Then there was the time of Jewish disobedience when the Jews reject their Messiah. Paul says of this in verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. He means that God has hardened the Jews so that the gospel has gone instead to the Gentiles. So enemies here doesn't, doesn't mean so much that the Jews have persecuted Christians. Oh, that was true. It means actually that they were enemies of God. They were at enmity with God through their unbelief in rejecting the Messiah. And alongside this period goes time of mercy to the Gentiles when the gospel's fruitful amongst the, Jew, the non-Jewish peoples of the world. And then finally... A time of mercy to the Jews. When prompted to envy by the prosperity of the gospel, they will turn to the Messiah in large numbers. Every great movement in history, whether it's migratory, military, religious, political, is under the mighty control of God, including this present time of the Gentiles, which is preparing steadily for the turning to Jesus of the Jews. And Paul describes that turning in those remarkable words in verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. This is really the nub of the passage, you know. Uh, our understanding of that really uh, has a huge uh, it's a huge factor in, in interpreting the rest of it. What does it mean? All Israel will be saved. What is all Israel? Well, it could mean... Uh, there's three, three valid interpretations. It could mean the total number of the elect of Israel will be saved. That kind of hardly goes without, goes, uh, without saying, doesn't it? I mean, the elect are going to be saved. So it seems a bit obvious. Secondly, it could mean the total number of elect Jews and Gentiles. In other words, the church. And Paul refers to uh, the church as being the Israel of God in Galatians. So that's another possibility. Or it could be uh, numerically a majority of ethnic Israel. A large ingathering of ethnic Israel will be saved. Now it's the third one. This large number of ethnic Israel that will be saved that uh, I find most persuasive. Uh, it's, the, it's the view taken by Professor Murray and others. Uh, it seems to fit with Paul's emphasis on something remarkable happening to ethnic Israel in the future. 
And the context is the numerical balance. You know, uh, it's a numbers game here. At the moment, the numbers are stacked against belief, but in the future, the numbers will be stacked for belief. All Israel will be saved. There will be a great turning of Jews. And saved, of course, is exactly that. It means that they will have salvation in the sense that every uh, Jew or Gentile will have salvation. It's not talking about uh, a different route for Jewish people. Uh, There are some pro-Israel theologies that speak of future blessing in political and national terms or even a a two-covenant theology where there's a, a different covenant made with the Jewish people. Now these I've got no basis in the Bible. The, the, the salvation of Jews will be in the same way that God has ordained for all peoples. It will be faith in the Messiah, the one Messiah, Jesus Christ, who will be Lord of Jew and Greek. And Paul typically now backs up his assertion with a quotation. Uh, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So it's from two scriptures. Isaiah 59.20, Jeremiah 31.34. The Deliverer clearly is the Messiah, i.e. the Lord Jesus Christ. And both of the quotations are are set in the context of a promise of the Holy Spirit and the New Covenant, whereby the Holy Spirit will write the law on the hearts of the people. So this is what's going to happen uh, to the Jews at this time of turning. They will experience what was promised for all peoples, what became a reality from Pentecost on, that every believer now has the Holy Spirit writing the the commands of God in the heart so that not only do we have the law, but we have the desire and the power to keep the law through the Holy Spirit. God is sovereign. Second point is that God is faithful. He is a faithful God. God is keeping, Paul says, his covenant commitments to Israel. At present, they're enemies of God because of their unbelief in his son, whom he has sent. But their disobedience, their rejection, their enmity, they're serving a purpose. It's giving space for the bringing in of the full number of the Gentiles. However, God is not finished with his people. As far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Loved on account of the patriarchs. Okay, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the the fathers of Israel. As far as election is concerned, we're not thinking so much of individual salvation. We're thinking of of the election of Israel as a chosen nation. God has chosen her or elected her to be a special people to himself. Now, there's a sense in which they still are chosen people. And the reason is spelled out. The reason for them being still special is spelled out. Uh, It's because God loved and loves the patriarchs. Not because the patriarchs were deserving of his love, that they never messed up, because they did. They messed up pretty badly sometimes. Think of Abraham lying twice about Sarah being his sister to to save his own skin. Jacob, 
a weasley character Jacob was in his youth. Imagine deceiving your blind father in order to get the birthright. I mean, there was virtually nothing he wouldn't stoop to to get his own way. But God had made a covenant with them. He brought them into the realm of his covenant promise and that commitment had consequences for their descendants. You know, it's had a ripple-down effect. How you live has consequences for your children and for their children after them in the mysterious ways of God. God is faithful to his commitments even though his people are faithless. The gifts and the call of God are irrevocable. They are not to be called back, in other words. They are not to be revoked. God gave privilege to Israel and he didn't annul them. He didn't call them in completely when Israel proved disobedient. Yeah, there were serious consequences. There were eternal consequences for Israel, for the individuals within Israel. And there have been for nearly 2,000 years. But the benefits that were there by virtue of being a chosen people are to some extent ongoing. And Paul spelt them out at the beginning of chapter 9. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Paul's saying there are advantages from being part of the ancient people of Israel. These advantages won't save you because only faith in Jesus will save you. But they are real privileges and they belong to Israel still. And one day these benefits will come alive when Israel receives her saviour. I like to think of it a little bit in terms of uh, a child from a Christian family who was baptised and reared within the fellowship of the church. You know, he might rebel from the church. And if he continues in that rebellion, all his privileges won't save him. Only Jesus will save him. But these privileges remain real blessings and therefore there's much hope, much comfort to pray for him that he will return to the God to whom he was assigned in covenant. God is faithful. Thirdly and briefly, God is merciful. God is merciful. Uh, In the last three verses of the section, uh, two words figure very prominently disobedience and mercy each one of them is mentioned four times and they're paired together the Gentile Christians at Rome were once disobedient but now they have received mercy the Jews were disobedient that gave room for mercy to be shown to the Gentiles and in the end as a result of mercy being shown to the Gentiles Jews will be prepared by God to receive mercy disobedience mercy Mercy, disobedience, the mysterious pairing. Paul summarizes God's purposes in terms of binding or 
God has bound all men over to disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. Now, (laughs) you might think that it would go, God has bound all men over to disobedience in order that they might become obedient. That's kind of what you might expect. But that's not the logic of grace. God has bound all men over to disobedience that they might receive mercy. He's closed them up. He's he's enfolded them in a, a situation of shared disobedience in order that they might receive mercy. See, mercy is what we get. Sorry, mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. When we're disobedient, we deserve judgment. We deserve the wrath of God to come on us. And mercy is when we don't get what we deserve. And friends, we only cry out for mercy when we have come to an end of ourselves, when we realise just how disobedient we are and how hell-deserving we are. So long as someone continues to uh, plead his sincerity, you know, the, the, the way that he's kind of inched his way towards God, done good works, helped the poor, been a nice person, that person's a million miles away from receiving the mercy of God. It's only when we discover that we are utterly undeserving of God's favour, that we've been enclosed within the corral of disobedience, and there's no hope for us but mercy that we will be saved. And so all of us, Jew, Gentile, churchgoer, non-churchgoer, before we come to Christ, we're all on level ground. See what Paul's saying? <laughs> Disobedience is actually the great democratizer. It's the great leveler. We're all, we're all in the same boat. All disobedient, all needing mercy. It's not uncommon to hear from people, I heard it quite recently, uh, that when sin is raised, when sin is mentioned, the reaction is, that's saying that I'm worse than those folks that go to church and read their Bible. It's saying that I'm a worse person, I'm a really bad person. Actually, it's not at all. It's saying you're, you're, you're in the same uh, area, the same ring-fenced pen of disobedience as everybody else. And your only hope is the only hope of everybody else. Mercy. Mercy. We're all in level ground. All disobedient. All need mercy. And so we come back. To God's, to Paul's original point, his pastoral point: Don't be conceited. Don't be conceited. There is no place for conceit. There is no place for thinking that we are better off than those who are presently struggling in the darkness, because God may have great purposes for blessing for them, as He has for the Jews, who at this point in time are rejecting of their Messiah. What is evangelism? The spirit of evangelism is always the spirit of one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Yeah? 
We're all in level ground. We all need the bread of life. We all need the mercy of God. Because we've all been enclosed in disobedience. Let's never lose sight of the wonder that God has shown us mercy. And pray that he might show to others also. Amen. May God bless to us his precious word.